You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. Hey, it's Jean Chatsky. Welcome to Her Money. And I'd like to begin this show with a little shout out to my new friends in Nashville, Tennessee. I have been, and I, I think I've talked about this a little bit, I've been going around the country as I travel for various speeches and organizing some Her Money happy hours where I just gather together groups of women, women I don't know, women in all walks of life, often women who are listeners to this show, and we sit down and for about two hours, we have a very open, candid conversation about money. And I had one of these just a couple of weeks ago in Nashville, Tennessee, in the lobby of the hotel where I was staying. We all got a drink at the bar, sat down at a table and just let the conversation roll. And what was so interesting to me was not only had I never met any of these women, with the exception of one woman who brought a friend, none of these women had ever met each other. We ranged in age from about 35 to close to 60. Lawyers, a couple of them, business owners, salespeople. I mean, a real range of people. And yet everybody was open and honest and both helpful and helped to each other. When I, when I left, everybody was exchanging, uh, email addresses and phone numbers so that they could meet up again without me. Because what I've discovered in, in having these conversations is that they feel very revolutionary to the people who experience them. Because we don't talk about money with our friends. Many of us don't talk about money with our spouses and, as a result, we're just not as equipped to have these important conversations as we need to be. And so those of you who are longtime listeners of the show, you know this is why we do this show. But I thought we'd dive a little further into the issue of money and communication with an expert on just that topic. Kathleen Burns Kingsbury is my guest today. She is a wealth psychology expert. She's got a new book out. It's called Breaking Money Silence, How to Shatter Money Taboos, Talk Openly About Finances, and Live a Richer Life. And her mission is to empower women and couples and families, as well as the advisors who serve them and help them have better, more effective conversations. So Kathleen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jean. It's awesome to be here, and I feel a little jealous that I wasn't in Nashville at that happy hour. 
Well, I'll let you know when I'm having one in your neck of the woods. I feel like I've sort of got my mojo now, you know, like it, it took a little while to figure out how to run these groups effectively, which I'm sure you could have given me many tips on. But now I feel like I'm up and rolling and people get as much out of them as I do, which is terrific. L- let me back up and ask you you know, how did you become an expert in talking effectively about money when it is such a difficult thing to do? I love a good challenge. Um, so basically, I started uh, to delve into better financial communication when my husband and I actually uh, got ripped off by a contractor. We were building an addition on a house and the contractor abandoned the property. And all of a sudden, I realized I am really good at the technical side of finance, having a financial background. But boy, I'm not very good at talking about money with my partner or with people in my life. Uh, and so that horrible situation actually parlayed me uh, into a wonderful career where I joined um, all of, you know, learned uh, new things about money psychology, but also borrowed everything that I knew from my counseling and psychology background. So uh, it was through a, a crisis that I turned it into an opportunity. And then over the past 10 plus years, I've been t- talking with advisors and women and couples about how they communicate about money and, and offering uh, tips and tools, both for my own life and also from research in terms of, you know, how can we do this better? Because it's so important. You say that one of the first things people need to understand about themselves before they embark on these conversations is their money mindset. So what is that and how can we figure out what ours is and whether it's helping us or hurting us? Absolutely. Uh, A money mindset is a set of uh, thoughts and beliefs that you have about money. They often reside in your unconscious mind. And so they're formed between roughly the ages of five and 15. So basically, as we're looking around and watching our parents or our grandparents or maybe significant adults in our life uh, make, manage, talk about money or not talk about money, we're kind of storing these ideas away. And the group of all those different thoughts and beliefs Uh, add up to be your money mindset. And so the dilemma is because they reside in our unconscious mind, we often are aware that these thoughts and beliefs impact our saving, spending, gifting, and, uh, you know, investing behavior every day. So how do we get a grip on what ours is if we don't know what it is? Right. Well, the first thing is to learn what a money mindset is. The second thing is to start to tap into what, you know, what is going on in my head when I'm making a purchase or saving money. Um, There is an exercise in the book, Breaking Money Silence, where I take people through just a quick uh, five to 10 statements and you finish them like, like finishing the, the thought saving money is or spending money is. Or, you know, my parents taught me uh, that money was. And well, so let's, we started. Let's try you it. Go through it. Well, yeah, okay, let's great. try it so that we can help people sort of understand how to access their own, because I think that's the building block in moving forward. Absolutely. I mean, I think once you start to realize that you have these thoughts and you tap into it, you hear them more and more. So let me just give you a quick, you know, five quick statements. Okay. Um, and uh, if you want to be my guinea pig, G, sure. you can. You can complete those statements with what automatically comes to mind. You ready? Yep. Okay. So they will complete the first statement. Saving money is? Freeing. Spending money is? Fun. My parents taught me money was? Valuable. Talking about money is? Difficult. 
and people who talk about money are? Oh, boy, brave. Okay, great. So if we think about your automatic responses in like 30 seconds or less, right, what stands out about your money mindset? And it basically was saving money is freeing, spending money is fun, my ter- my parents taught me money was valuable, um, talking about money is difficult, and people who talk about money are brave. What stands out there for you? I think an understanding of both the fact that this is an emotional topic and a tactical one, if that makes sense. I mean, you know, I, I, but I, but I'm not sure. I'd like to know what stands out to you about my answers. Yeah. Well, I, you know, when I was uh, asking you this, I was wondering what would Jean have said 20 years ago <laughs> um, in terms of, you know, your money mindset before you did so much work in this field. Um, but I think what stands out for me is uh, the thought that talking about money is difficult and people who talk about money are brave. And so that money mindset or that part of your money mindset, I think shows that you appreciate that this is a taboo topic in our society that isn't always easy, but that brave people uh, engage in these conversations. And so that brings me back to your, you know, cocktail hour or your her money uh, happy hours that you know that brave women are going to show up and talk about this difficult topic, right? And does it get easier or does it stay difficult? Well, for me, it's gotten easier through the years. I mean, but I, I have... You know, I do this on a day to day basis and I, and I acknowledge it's not always easy for me to talk about it, even with my spouse, although we do talk about it because we know how important it is and that you have to do it in order to get where you want to go in any sort of a planned way. But for the women who showed up at my happy hour, I think they'll all do it again. I think they felt more powerful leaving the evening than they did when they arrived. And they felt a little less alone knowing that there were other people who had been through what they had been through. Yes. And so what that tells me and that what that tells people who are listening is that whatever your automatic thought is about talking about money, it can change and it can shift. And in this example, through experience, and that's always the that's kind of the dilemma, right? So we, many of us find talking about money and especially the emotional aspects about money difficult, but the more you do it, um, the easier it gets. Or even if you're having a difficult money conversation, if you've mastered some skills in talking about money and understanding what you need to do in order to have an effective money conversation, you actually can get through a difficult conversation and Come out on the other side feeling closer to the person that you're with, uh, having a greater understanding. And, and I think the part that we don't talk about much, Jean, is that, you know, you understand yourself a little bit more. So oh, yeah, I no have kidding. found, yeah, so I have found <laughs> talking about money and being open to it, um, challenging sometimes like you, but also, wow, I have learned so much about myself and the people around me. And it, dare I say that now talking about money for the most part for me is fun. Well, let me ask you, you mentioned those skills that we need. If you have your hands on a couple of skills that can make these conversations easier or tools or tactics. So if, if our listeners are going to, you know, put down the podcast and go have a money conversation, can you give us a couple of tools that will make this easier? 
Absolutely. And and so on the surface, these may sound simple, but remember, if you're engaged in a conversation and you're a little bit emotional, they um, can really be helpful. So there are seven, and I'll highlight, you know, the top three on this list, but there's seven money talk guidelines that I think are really important. Number one, it's really important to show up and listen actively. Actively listening means that you are not listening to your partner or your parent or your kid in order to make an argument back to prove your point to be right. (laughs) Active listening is really engaging uh, in trying to understand what they're saying and putting yourself in their shoes. Um, And that requires a healthy dose of curiosity. So my second tip is to really get curious. When you're in a money conversation, try to really get curious about that other person. Because if you're truly wondering what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what their money mindset is, you are too busy to be defensive and to, um, you know, trigger potentially a fight. And I guess the last uh, piece of advice I'd give out of these money talk guidelines is, you know, we have to work really hard at not reading minds. I am not very good at this when it comes to my relationship with my husband. I often think after 20 years, I know what he's thinking. Uh-huh. <laughs> and what he tells me time and time again is, no, you don't. Um, so the last uh, tip is don't mind read. You know, it's really hard for some of us not to say, oh, I know, because we've been in this argument before. We've had this discussion before. But to really take a step back, once again, listen and really know that each situation and each money conversation is unique and that your partner or your parent or your kid is the one who gets to let you know what they think. It's not you reading their minds. Do we have to fill our partners or our parents or our kids or whomever we're going to have this conversation with in on those things that you just told us? Like, do they need to know the ground rules as well for it to go well? I think it's important. I mean, you know, there is, there are these guidelines and if there's a way in which you can put them, um, I have a PDF of them, but if you could put them in front of you before each money conversation and just uh, agree that these are the basic guidelines, it can be really helpful. And if you get off track, which sometimes when you're practicing a new skill, you might, then it's, you just take a time out and it may be a time out for two, three minutes. So, you know, oh, you know, we got off track. Maybe we were not being as respectful as we could be. Uh, or it may be that you take a whole day off, but you definitely return to it. So I, that's an excellent question. I think everybody needs to understand the basic guidelines. And then, um, you know, the conversation has some structure that can be really helpful. Can you share that with us? Because then we can put it on the website. We can pop oh, it out. To, or we can, uh, if, if our listeners want this, they can send us an email and we will shoot the guidelines out to them. So we'll make sure that we get it out there. I want to keep going on this topic because it's fascinating. But before we do that, let me just remind everybody that conversations like this one are brought to you by Fidelity Investments. And Fidelity is focused on helping women like all of us take charge of our financial lives. We deserve to live the lives that we work hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time. You'll find more conversations like this one with Kathleen Burns Kingsbury. You'll find information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married or divorced or starting a new career. And again, that is fidelity.com slash it's time. 
We are talking about how to have those all important financial conversations with Kathleen Burns Kingsbury. She is the author of Breaking Money Silence: How to Shatter Money Taboos, Talk Openly About Finances, and Live a Richer Life. You know, one of the things I thought was most interesting in forming these conversations, you've said it's okay not to know something, but it's also okay to know something. There's research that shows that when women do know about money, and even when we're earning more of it, we still don't talk about it, especially with men. So, as this paradigm continues to shift, can you talk about that? Sure. You know, I think it's it's unfortunate, but a lot of women um, have been brainwashed by our society that basically says that women are not supposed to be as powerful or not be as profit motivated or not be that interested in finance. Now, that may sound like a very antiquated idea, and it is, but it seems to be woven in the fabric of our society. And so part of what ends up happening is that, say, when you have a woman who is a female breadwinner, so she earns the majority of the income uh, in the house, that um, these women, uh, in one study, it found that 40% of female breadwinners actually downplay their earning status with their friends and family because they're afraid that they're going to be judged. Um, so in some ways, there's a backlash for women when they are financially confident or when they know something about money. Um, and where does that come from? It comes from a society that still, even though 44% of women are primary breadwinners in the home, still um, 28% of Americans generally feel it's better for men or husbands to earn more than their wives. That is very mad men. Uh, if it you know does. That TV it feels show. very 1950s. <laughs> it does. And it scares or 60s, me. 60s, right? Mad men was the 60s. Right, right. And so, um, you know, What's so challenging about this is that, you know, a lot of us as women, it's hard not to buy into some of this. And so the idea is, how can we as women embrace our power and our knowledge and then share that with other people? If you are financially literate, if you are financially confident, how can we be okay with that and then role model that to other women and other men, um, that that's an okay thing to be, uh, that financial literacy is not just, um, you know, for men to have. And what's your answer? to that? I mean, how can women role model it to other women? Well, let me give you a quick example from my own life that I think is a, a great example that a lot of people who are listening probably could do as well. Um, I have a niece who is, uh, of course, the apple of my eye. She's about 26. She works at a law firm. And when she first got this job, she called me up. She calls me Auntie Kay. And she called me up. She says, Auntie Kay, I just had the best interview. She goes, but, you know, I think they're going to offer me the job and I, I just don't know how to negotiate. And so first of all, I was thrilled that she called me. Second of all, I thought, wow, I haven't worked in the corporate world in two decades. I hope I can help her. <laughs> and then we started to have a conversation when she got the off, uh, the financial offer. And her belief was that if she negotiated, she would lose the job. And so I let her know that they wanted you. They wanted you in a day. And, you know, part of this negotiation thing is the game that you need to play in the corporate world. And so we talked about what she wanted and I kind of coached her through different ways in which she could address this scenario. She ends up landing the job. Flash forward a year. 
I'm meeting her um, at a holiday party, you know, family holiday party. And she says to me, you know what, Auntie Kay? She goes, my girlfriend the other day was having the same fear that I had. And I coached her just like you coached me. And I thought, that's what we need to do. We need to teach the next generation how to do this, whether it's negotiation, whether it's learning about money, saving, spending, investing, or the emotional side of money. And then we need to then support them as they teach their peers. And I believe if we can all do that, we can break money silence for good. And that's really exciting for me. There was a story in the paper, I believe it was the Wall Street Journal, but it might have been the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, talking about millennials and how they are sharing salary information with one another, which is not something that previous generations have really um, taken a liking to doing. Why do you think millennials are more open to this? And what do you make of the fact that they are sharing? I saw that article as well, and I was excited. Do you know, was it the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times? Because I truly cannot remember. I am 95% sure it was the Wall Street Journal. Okay. But 95%. <laughs> but when I, when I read that, I was excited. And the part that excited me the most about the data was the idea that millennials are talking to their coworkers. Um, 20% of millennials are talking to their coworkers about their salary, where baby boomers, I believe it was 8% to their coworkers. And I thought, ooh, that's important. And I believe that because millennials grew up in a time where they're sharing so many things and taboo topics, um, such as, you know, talking about religion or politics have gone by the wayside, um, that no longer do they feel so stymied to talk about their feelings, that this is going to trickle down to then talking about money and talking about how they can get a fair wage. And I believe if we have transparency in salaries, that's going to help close you know, the gender wage gap. And it's also going to um, help all of us just in, engage in a more uh, fruitful conversation. So we've got a few minutes left. I want to do a very quick lightning round with you. And I just love one or two tips on talking money with very specific people in your life. So number one on the list, you got to have a money conversation with your partner. I think you should go on a money date regularly and ask your partner what is their greatest financial success and what did they learn from it. Your aging parent. I think you need to take some time to process your feelings about your parents getting older and then you need to extend a loving invitation. And by that, I mean, you know, lead with your caring thoughts and then let them have some control over the outcome. Your boss. Do your research and your homework. Uh, you have to show your boss how you add value to the firm and the bottom line, because keep in mind that that person may need to justify that to somebody else. So make their job easier so they can give you that raise. Your coworker. This is a tricky one, but don't assume that the other person that you're working with wants to engage in a money conversation about salary. Um, you know, there's a longstanding tradition um, that we don't talk about it at work. Um, so choose wisely and dare to break the money silence and know if for some reason they're not ready, um, you can, you know, extend an invitation for them to chat later on. Your friend and, you know, we'll just make it a just a, a friend who makes more than you. 
you know, it's often we don't know if somebody makes more than us or not. So I think anytime you're talking with a friend, it could be, you know, I read this book or I listened to this podcast and, you know, let's dare to break money silence or, um, hey, growing up in your family, you know, what were you taught about talking about money? Um, so trying to get into kind of their money talk mindset might be a great way to go because it's not relying on whether they make more or less. It's more kind of what are their thoughts about talking about it? And how about your financial advisors? One of the things that came up in um, one of my recent happy hours was that uh, some of the women whose, whose families did have financial advisors who had advisors with their spouses felt like the advisor wasn't theirs, that the advisor was actually there for their spouse. Mm, big problem in the industry that I'm trying to uh, help solve. I think that women need to be direct and let the advisor know what they want help with, what they want to focus in on the meetings, and also be proactive in terms of the interviewing process. So if you're already working for, with an advisor, let him know or her know um, what you like about the meetings and what you'd like to be different. If you are looking for an advisor, you have a great opportunity to interview that advisor with your partner and make sure that both you and your partner get at least two or three things on your wish list for the ideal advisor. There are good couple advisors out there. I call them couple friendly advisors. Um, and just make sure that you're working with someone that's going to pay attention to you as well as your partner because both of you uh, have really important perspectives and really need to be valued in that relationship. And there are enough good advisors out there that you don't have to stick with one that you're not happy with. Kathleen Burns Kingsbury, thank you so much for all the wonderful advice. Congratulations on the book. Thank you, Jean. We will look forward to having you back. And we'll be back in just a sec with your questions. So Kelly has joined me in the studio. Hey, Kel. Hi, Jean. How are you? I'm good. So as you were listening to those five quick questions that Kathleen rolled out, did you have answers popping into your head? I did. I can't recall what the five lines are right now. But for you, I was thinking it just sounds like you understand the complexities of money. And you touched on it right away when she's like, what do you think it means to you? You said... You know, it's both emotional and tactical. Right. We all come to it with different baggage, so to speak, mm -hmm. right? My baggage is in working in this every single day, and I'm sure some of yours is as well. Oh, of course. Um, but if you, the, when she said talking about money is, what would, what was your initial reaction to that one? Similar to yours, tricky. My tricky. word is tricky. Yeah. It yeah. can be tricky. And I think, I think, we are more aware of that than most. Absolutely. Yeah. So cool. All right. Let's move right into questions because I know we have a bunch. We do. Our first question this week is from Chelsea, and it's one that we can all relate to. She writes, ever since graduating from college, I've been really focused on paying down debt, building an emergency fund, and starting to invest. I have a full-time job that pays pretty well and finished paying off my car last year, and I don't have any outstanding credit card debt. So in general, I'm in a good place financially for a 26-year-old. I would say. I think so too. However, <laughs> the more that I learn about what I should be doing to make sure I'm financially sound now and later in life, it constantly feels like I'm not doing enough. Not enough savings, not enough investments, still too much debt. How do I know that I'm doing as much as I can versus worrying too much about finances and not living enough in the present? 
Okay. Well, I'm thinking about what she wrote, and the too much debt is making me a little confused because it doesn't sound. She finished paying off her car. She's been focused on paying down debt. She doesn't have any credit card debt, so maybe she, maybe、loans? she's got student loan debt. Yeah, that's probably what we're talking about here. It sounds to me, Chelsea, like you are doing really, really, really well, and we know that there are some people for whom saving money is a more pleasurable experience, and some people for whom saving money is a more painful experience. And the same is true of spending money. And it sounds to me like you're one of those people. For whom spending is hard and saving is a little easier, and you're going to have to nudge yourself to actually know that you're saving enough so that you can get the most out of life. I want to just tell you a couple of specific things here. If you are saving a good fifteen percent of what you're bringing in, including matching dollars that you're getting from your employer and any sort of a retirement account. Then you are really on track as far as the amount that you need to save, and although the number of zeros in the student loan debt that you may be carrying seems huge and overwhelming, it is really okay to make sure that you're paying those debts off at as low an interest rate as possible, and then just pay them off over time so that you can do things like both invest for the future and. Enjoy your life. You don't want to get caught up in this cycle of having to be overly frugal, and then get to be thirty and thirty-five and forty, and think, "Oh my gosh, why didn't I go to Europe when I had the chance?" So that's that's my fear for you. I, I want to see you try to toe the line. In that way, and I think making sure that you're keeping the credit card debt non-existent and saving 15% ought to do it. Our next one is from Linda. She writes, "If I already subscribe to my FICO monitoring, do I need to sign up with Equifax for their service? Given the hack, generally no. I just want you to make sure that you've got the FICO service that is monitoring." All three of your credit reports. FICO does sell a package. It's called 3B, I believe, where it pays attention to the credit reports from Equifax, Experian, and TransUnion. As long as you're covered for that through FICO, then you don't need to sign up for it through Experian. And we'll do one more from Kate. I'm having difficulty choosing which online bank to use for my down payment savings. I won't need to withdraw the money for a couple of years. Multiple online banks have the same high APY. What other factors should I be considering? What differentiates one online bank from another? I think the biggest differentiating factor for me is the ease of use. So online banks don't typically come with debit cards, which in my book is a good thing because it's just one more layer of 
um, resistance when it comes to getting your money out of your bank. You can't just go and pull it out of the ATM or swipe the card and spend it. You actually have to think about it and transfer the money back to your brick and mortar savings account or checking account in order to use it. Um, go ahead and also take a look at the customer reviews of these various banks. Consumers these days are very open and honest in how happy they are in their dealings with particular banks. Um, but above all, I would say, you know, the interest rate is a really important thing. If there's one that's closer to you versus further away from you and in terms of its headquarters, that might be a good way to go. Um, but those three things put together, I think, will give you the answer that you're looking for. Great. Thank you, Jean. Sure. My pleasure. Thanks so much for those terrific questions. Just remember, we always want to answer whatever is on your mind. So reach out to us. You can do that on Twitter, on Facebook, but most people find us at jeanchatsky.com. And now it's time for our weekly Thrive segment, the holiday shopping season. Yes, it's here. And this year, consumers are expected to spend up to $682 billion on holiday shopping. That's up 4% from last year, according to the National Retail Federation. But just because people are planning to spend more doesn't mean you have to spend more. So I've got a couple of suggestions to save you not just money, but stress during the holidays. First, make a list. Yes, make an old-fashioned list and check it twice, much like the prep that you do for grocery shopping. It's easier to take advantage of discounts when you already know what you want to buy and how much you want to spend, and that goes for every item on your list. Even if it's a ballpark figure, having a goal budget is better than no budget at all. Also, Pay attention to when you want a specific brand or model and when you can be brand agnostic. Brand flexibility often means price flexibility, too. Second, consider cashback and coupons. If you'll be doing the majority of your shopping from the couch, as many people will, then shopping portals, also called cashback websites, are worth considering. These websites get more advertising revenue the more people they bring in, and they provide some of that cash back to you, the site's visitors. As a user, you just go to a portal's website. Ebates is probably the most well-known, and you set up an account. And then before you make your next purchase, you go through the portal. You click through it to access your chosen store. If you buy something while you're logged in, it'll add money to your account. Cashback Monitor is another site. It's a good tool for finding out which of the shopping portals, because there are many, offers the highest base percentage back on that particular day for purchases at your chosen stores. And finally, choose credit over debit. As long as you're not in credit card debt and you know you can pay off your purchases within 30 days, there are a few smart reasons to use a credit card when you pay. You're better protected. If your credit card is stolen, it's technically the credit card's money on the line, not yours. There are zero liability policies. You may also get valuable warranty and return policy extensions. So check your credit card's terms and conditions. And if prices fall, you could get some money back. Some card issuers offer something called 
price protections. You'll find out about that in the terms and conditions as well. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Kathleen Burns Kingsbury for a terrific conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at iTunes. If it's been a while and you're inclined to leave us a review, please leave us a review. We want to know what you think. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. We'll talk soon.